Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers. Well, most of us here in Southeast Michigan know the story, or at least part of the story, of Motown Records, the great label founded by Barry Gordy and that little house on West Grand Boulevard. But many of us may not be as familiar with the story of Stax Records, which came out of Memphis. Great artists recorded for that label as well, including Isaac Hayes, Booker T and the MGs, Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, and dozens and dozens of others. The story of Stax Records is told masterfully in a new book by Robert Gordon. It's called Respect Yourself, Stax Records, and the Soul Explosion. In a recent conversation with Robert Gordon, I started things off by asking Robert, who were the founders of this label, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton? Uh, They were a brother and sister from a rural area outside of Memphis about, I don't recall, 75 or 80 miles. Um, uh, whites in a town that, has, that even today doesn't have a stoplight. So uh, they came to Memphis because it was the uh, bright lights in the distance of opportunity and uh, thought they were going to be bankers or school teachers and wound up running a label that became, you know, a great symbol of, uh, of integration and, and harmony in the civil rights movement and also a huge black power symbol later down the road. Did they take their cue from Sun Records? Sun Records was based in Memphis, of course, and was in business already for a few years beforehand, correct? Yes. Um, in a way, I think it, you know anyone getting into the record business in Memphis at the time was taking a cue from Sun Records because Sam had made it seem like anyone could do it. Uh, of course, you know he was brilliant, um, and uh, but yeah, it was a local success story that had sold sold Elvis Presley to to RCA Records for big dollars. Could you contrast and compare what was different and what was similar between Stax Records and Motown Records? Well, I think they both uh, um, sort of emblematize their cities, right? They represent their cities in a way, Motown, Detroit, and Stax, Memphis. And so the first important point to understand is that in Motown, you know, the big city in the north, they were making cars. And in Memphis, which was... I would say compared to Motown, you could certainly call it sleepy. Uh, and in the South, they were making, you know, the, the big factory job to get was, was, was making automobile tires. So the whole vision of Detroit was much larger, I think. Like Barry Gordy, who started Motown, he did it with a vision to be a big enterprise. Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton, uh, they kind of stumbled into their success and kept getting, you know, with good instinct and great luck, they they had their success. So sorry, yeah, and they were less, at Motown it was very much a factory assembly line like in Detroit, and here it was a much more organic thing, almost like church, uh, just, you know, people stepping from the neighborhood or congregation up to the microphone and singing with feeling. What were the first few key singles released on Stax Records? It was initially known as Satellite Records, correct? Right. Well, um, very early it was a a, uh, Rufus Thomas and Carla Thomas duet called Cause I Love You, and then Carla put out Gee Whiz, a beautiful, soulful anthem. Um, And then the Marquis put out 
last night, and then Booker T and the MGs put out Green Onions. It was just kind of a thing that, you know, by then they were finding their sound. You know, at Green Onions, the stack sound was defined, and in songs like, well, Rufus and Carla, especially, you hear the soulful funk of the of, of the of the artists in the area. Tell us about this old movie theater that they took over and made into the Stack Studio. How did they get a hold of that? This was a time when television was taking over. You know, uh, you mentioned Sun Records. The success of Elvis had happened, you know, through television. Uh, So these theaters were empty and available. And Jim had been way out in the country of Memphis, outside of Memphis, and he, the place he was trying to make, one of the places he was trying to make records was right next to a train track, and they said every time they were starting to sound good, a train would come by and ruin their recording. So he lucked into a cheap theater in South Memphis, uh, working with um, a producer named Chips Moman, and Estelle set up a record shop where the popcorn had been sold, and Jim recorded in the back, and you know they just kind of opened their doors and to see what would happen and talent walked in the door and they greeted that talent with loving arms tell us the story about the recording of booker t and the mg's green onions their first hit it came about kind of by accident right absolutely they were called in that day to on a sunday to record a commercial a jingle and uh, there was a vocalist on the jingle and it didn't work out and there was tape on the machine and these four players it was the first time al jackson had ever been the drummer had ever been in the recording studio there and uh it was the first time the, these four guys had ever played together they had just you know where the band called for that jingle session and um and uh, they recorded a blues song that they thought was going to be a big hit. And when they were done, they were surprised to hear Jim Stewart, the owner, say, hey, if we want to put that out, we would need something for the other side. And so they tossed off this old idea they had, uh, not, you know, called Green Onions. And, and that went out as the B-side. Um, and soon the DJs were flipping it over going, no, no, this is it. And uh, it took off. It was at that point uh, three black artists and one white artist, Steve Cropper, the white guitarist, and um, Al Jackson, the drummer, and uh, Booker T. Jones, the organ player. And the original bass player was Louis Steinberg, and he was later replaced by Duck Dunn, which gave this, which changed the sound a little bit, made it more contemporary, and um, made a nice symmetry on stage, the two blacks and two whites. Otis Redding becoming a Stax artist is another one of those happy accidents. How did that come about? He was brought up to drive the car of the of the star gu- guitarist, um, and uh, and and the star guitarist couldn't quite get a groove with the house band uh, when they when they when they pulled up. Uh, at first, the MGs were waiting out front because there was no air conditioning, and it was a summer day at Stack, August 61, after the uh, Green Onions, I believe. And um, this was the guy who got out and started to, he was the roadie. The driver got out and was unloading the star's gear, and they went in and they did the session with the star, but it didn't work out. And they couldn't find a good groove. And 
the Stax artists were making their living in clubs. They had to they had to pack up and go get ready for their 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 evening gig. And Al Jackson said to Steve Cropper, "This guy's been bugging me all day. The driver here, he says he can sing. Can you give him a, a chance to uh, play?" And um, and Steve said, "You know, what do you want to do?" And the guy said, uh, "He started to sing these arms of mine." Steve said the hair went up on his arm three inches, and he had to run out in the parking lot and call the art, call the players. Hey, come back in! You know, we are going to record something. This guy's great, and they cut Otis Redding's first song, "These Arms of Mine." And something that gave me goosebumps was your description of Otis Redding, backed by Booker T and the MGs, and their fantastic performance at the Monterey Pop Festival. That really, really was so important in their career. Take us back to that moment in 1967. Looking back, we know that this is Otis's breakthrough moment in a way. He's performing for the white hippie audience in California, a new, you know, a new pop generation, and they are embracing him at this performance. And uh, and so the and we know too that you know he's going to have a tragic demise in just a few months. So I was able, without foretelling the tragedy that would happen, and uh, I was able to ride it with all the emotion that we would be bringing to it. If you knew or didn't know, it's just, he's so beautiful. He opens himself up so much there. Um, and he's so at one with the band. It was, you know, I was pleased to have such beautiful raw material to work with in telling the story. And then after this staggeringly great performance at the Monterey Pop Festival comes disaster as Otis Redding dies in a plane crash in December of 1967. And then a few months after that in Memphis comes the assassination of Martin Luther King. It all played out like a Greek tragedy, didn't it? Exactly right. Um, This label that has gone from, you know, nothing from a lark in Jim Stewart's wife's uncle's garage to be Become the home of Otis Redding, you know, and by then an internationally acclaimed superstar. They were the home of Sam and Dave, you know, hold on, I'm coming, and and um, and when something's wrong with my baby and Soul Man, and uh, you know, they then in the, like three in in just a few short months, uh, they lose everything. Otis dies in the plane crash. Uh, they they lose their catalog too to to a bad business deal with Atlantic Records. So they've gone from nothing to huge heights to really just nothing. Dr. King, where he's assassinated at the Lorraine Motel, that's the place in town where the black and white artists at Stax could go and be served a meal t- together. They they could record number one hits together, but they couldn't get a barbecue in most places in Memphis t- together. But the Lorraine had a swimming pool. So anyway, yeah, it happens right in that whole uh, perfect storm of events just takes the heart out of Stax. And um, it would seem like that that would be a time that they would... Uh, throw in the towel, but they came back from there to huge heights again. And what exactly happened with this disastrous deal that Stax Records made with Atlantic Records that almost destroyed the company completely? Well, the Atlantic deal had only ever been a handshake up until about 1965. Um, basically, 
the the important the the relationship is that Atlantic could distribute the records and get them into stores, which is what a little place like Stax in Memphis couldn't do. But if they had a distribution deal with Atlantic, which was the largest independent record company, then Stax could get its records, you know, all over the all over the country. So their relationship grows together because Atlantic is recording soul music, rhythm and blues. Ray Charles recorded there, uh, Solomon Burke. And um, they're actually hitting a little bit of a dry spell. And Stax fuels their these five years, 1960 to 65, and Jerry Wexler then uh, wants to put it in writing. And Jim Stewart receives a, I think it's a 13-page contract. And um, he doesn't, frankly, doesn't read the contract. He basically says, does this, you know, is, is this what we agreed on, you know, is this our handshake? And, and so he signed it. And then, but about three years later, two and a half years later, when Atlantic is selling it itself as a company to a larger company, Stax has the opportunity to join them. And they can't understand why the offers they're getting are so low, because they've really been driving Atlantic all these, all these years. And it's because Jim had signed away the rights to everything that Stax made that was distributed by Atlantic Records, which was basically everything, would be owned by Atlantic. So Stax lost control of its catalog. It's a horrible, horrible deal. And I think that Jim says he didn't have a lawyer read the contract. He didn't read the contract. He just signed it. Sounds like Stax could have gone under completely at that point, but they went on to survive and for a while even thrive because of two people, one named Al and one named Isaac. Yes, well, Isaac Hayes and Al Bell. Um, these two guys, yeah, Isaac Hayes was the performer who... Uh, had the success in Stax's second period to carry it on uh, and let it do all these other great things it did. And Al Bell was uh, the promotions guy. He was black, and he was the promotions guy from about 1965 on. And in 68, he sort of takes over Estelle's position, and he and Jim run the company through its second, through most of its second period until Al owns it outright. Um, and they make their success on the back of Isaac Hayes' great work, probably hitting its biggest peak with uh, Shaft, the theme from Shaft. But by the time of the theme from Shaft, Isaac Hayes could release two records a year, uh, two full albums a year, and both of them would sell, you know, in the mil- in, in millions of dollars. And he was had just, be- and then he began to appear in movies. He had become just a huge superstar with Stax. And at Stax, he'd been a songwriter. He'd been there since the early '60s as a songwriter, working with David Porter. The two of them writing such classics as the Sam and Dave hits, uh, "Soul Man" or "Hold On I'm Coming," and Carla Thomas's "B A B Y Baby," one of my favorite Stax songs. And they just have a whole catalog of of. 1960s soul hits. And yet with all the great success of Isaac Hayes, there was trouble again with a bad distribution agreement, and then Stax disappeared. What happened? Yeah, 
Yes, well, they uh, they had become, by 1972, they'd put on a Wattstax concert, which they'd turned into a documentary and a double LP that was a big success, followed by a you know sequel to the LP, another double that was a big success. They were raking in huge amounts of revenue, and with CBS, and then CBS, uh, they made a new distribution deal. They were the biggest distributor in the world, CBS uh, Records. And um, it seemed like it was going to be a golden opportunity for Stax, but uh, the partner they had there got fired within a few months of their deal, and they were left in hands that basically chose to cherry-pick artists. They, 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 they chose to squeeze the label, and, and the label at that same time was getting squeezed by the bank where they did their business because this was the 1970s recession hitting in. Uh, so Stax was getting in itself into another perfect storm. They make they have this huge success in 1972. Shaft is 71. 72 is Watt Stacks. Um, they make the deal with CBS in uh, late 72, early 73. Uh, Clive Davis is fired at CBS, and things begin to go wrong. And at the end of 1975, uh, just after Jim Stewart came back into the company and recorded uh, his first record in two years, Shirley Brown's Woman to Woman which went to number one just after that in uh, December 75. They, they were uh, put into forced bankruptcy. We've been talking about the biggest stars on Stax Records here, Robert. Could you name an obscure track or an obscure artist who appeared on Stax who you really like as well? Can I... As you've, as you've been asking it and I've been enjoying thinking about it, I've already thought of three. So uh, someone just sent me a link on YouTube to an artist called Johnny Day, D-A-Y-E. Uh, and it's a record that comes out in early 19, or in mid-1968, right when Stax is starting its second period. It's got a Steve Cropper guitar intro, intro that's so full of character. You just listen to him sliding up and down the strings and um, it brings a grin, it brings a grin to your face. It's really great. And the whole song is great. Uh, Johnny Day, I think he put out one, maybe two s- singles on Stacks. Now, there's an early artist named Barbara Stevens. Um, she was, when when Stacks had its success with Carla Thomas, and then and then Carla was going to go to college because uh, she had had her success in high school with Stacks, or her first success. Um, uh, they were looking for a new vocalist, a female vocalist, and they worked with Carla Stevens, and she's got a song called Wait a minute. That is really fun. It's Jim Stewart producing and working out his his Ray Charles groove. You hear the piano and it sounds. Uh, it's really a fun thing to listen to. And then the first thing I thought of when you asked was uh, a single by a woman named Margie Joseph, and the song is called One More Chance. And it's from the second period of Stax. It was recorded in New Orleans without any of the Memphis artists on it. And it was just a record that Stax licensed um, to release because they were trying to grow, you know, to be the Atlantic, that to be what Atlantic had been to them in its early years. They were putting out other things. And Margie Joseph's One More Chance has um, the greatest horn sections on it. It's just beautiful and, uh, you know, guaranteed to make you move and be ready for spring.